It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 321 for the 9th of December, 2012. This week, everything but the Facebook photo sync. Computers may kill jobs, but they also create jobs. Some things just never change. And in short circuits, a bit of a security leak in Switzerland. Something you use every day has turned 20. And the man who invented the clean room has died. In the past, Facebook has made some unfortunate security choices. Assuming, for example, that everyone would want to expose everything they post to everyone in the world. Over the years, that has changed, and the new PhotoSync function is a good example of the change. But it's still not exactly perfect. The new feature is available to users of iPhones, iPads, and Android devices. With your permission, it will automatically synchronize all photos created by your mobile device with Facebook. That can save some time and effort if you routinely upload photos to Facebook, but it's available only if you explicitly opt in. That's a wise choice, but even if you do opt in, this is a feature that still seems just a little dangerous. But Facebook has again made a good decision about where the photos are stored. If you enable the feature, the last 20 photos from your smartphone will be uploaded, as will every photo you create from that point forward. The photos will be uploaded to a private album space so that nobody can see the photos until you choose which photos to share with friends or the world. Additionally, Facebook has included a setting that limits the sync feature to running only when the phone has a Wi-Fi connection. Otherwise, the uploads could end up using all your data plan's bandwidth. And if you don't choose that option, the sync process will downsample all images when you're not connected via Wi-Fi. The process also keeps an eye on your phone's battery, and it won't upload photos if you're running low on power. Those are some of the good features. Security expert Graham Cluley at Sophos notes, however, that there are other considerations. Automatic uploading of every photo you take means every photo you take. That includes the ones you took for the guy you're flirting with, or the one you snapped of that part of your body that you can't quite see properly with a mirror. Clearly points out that Facebook will be able to extract data from all the files that are uploaded, and that includes the metadata such as the location, date, and time. So what happens if somebody takes your photo without asking permission? You may notice, and you may then demand that the photographer delete the photo from the phone, but will it also be removed from their private Facebook album? And if you're standing in a public place when the photo was taken, keep in mind that you have very few rights even to demand that the photo be deleted from the phone. Even though Facebook appears to be attempting to tread lightly, this is still not a technology that I'd be comfortable activating even if I had a smartphone that would work with the service. Cluley points out that Facebook could integrate its facial recognition technology with PhotoSync, and this could allow it to associate names with the photos, the times, the dates, and the locations. Over time, a comprehensive database of where you've been and who with is built up, says Cluley. Now, if a government agency attempted to compile such a dossier on citizens... I suspect that outrage would ensue. 
All photos, good and bad, says Cluley, will be available to Facebook. That doesn't mean anybody apart from you and Facebook's servers will be able to see them, but there's clearly a reduction in your level of control. On the Sophos Naked Security blog, Cluley provides instructions for turning the service off if, after turning it on, you have second thoughts. Cluley also maintains a Sophos page on Facebook. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. personal computer has been one of the most revolutionary inventions in history because it allows us to do things we could never do before. But the personal computer has also destroyed jobs, and in some cases entire industries, because it allows anyone to do things that once required a craftsman, and the results have not always been good. On the other hand, personal computers have made it possible for people to do things that they could never have done before, and this has created jobs and indeed entire industries. So if you view computers as job takers, that's only half the story, and it might be the smaller half. But computers have not always been kind to workers. Typesetters were probably the first large group of people to lose out to personal computers. In the 1980s, my job as an editor required that I send typewritten pages to a typesetting firm. The typesetters returned galley proofs to me, and usually the copy was too long or too short. Also, the typesetters had corrected some of my errors, but had introduced their own errors. After several iterations over a week or more, I would have output that I could manually paste onto artboards. Paste isn't quite accurate accurate because typeset output was run through a waxing machine that made it possible, although not always easy, to reposition copy after it had been placed. Then PageMaker and Ventura Publisher arrived on the scene, and suddenly it was possible for me to edit and copy-fit articles in a single pass. When the process was complete, I could output the results to a laser printer that had been retrofitted with a special card, allowing the printer to simulate 1000 DPI resolution. Nobody wanted to put typesetters out of business, but the new method provided capabilities that the old method never could match. Speed and control. Instead of a week, the process could be complete in an hour or less. And because I could see the results immediately on the screen, I had complete control over the output. The typesetters never saw it coming, and they didn't have a chance. I remember a conversation in which a typesetter described to me a way of life that was quickly disappearing. I thought I'd be able to move from town to town as a typesetter, he said, and I'd never have trouble finding work. Granted, there were lots of publications that rightly earned the epithet ransom note publishing, but eventually those who wanted to learn at least the basics of publishing and design found that they could. We still see horrible design today, but those who are serious about producing effective, craftsmanlike publications can learn how to do it. In the 1970s, before personal computers were available, 
Computers were very specialized. You could buy a dedicated word processing machine from IBM, but it was expensive, and it did only word processing. When personal computers began to show up in the 1980s, they were general-purpose machines, and that made all the difference in the world. These devices could perform many tasks depending on the software. Pop in a floppy disk with a word processor program, and you had a word processor. Start the computer with disks containing a spreadsheet program, and you could analyze numeric data. At the time, that concept was revolutionary. notice that some things just never change? Ten years ago, this month, I wrote these words. Linux keeps chewing on the corners of computing. And in the years before and after 2002, I'd written about Linux many times. Despite the fact that Linux would serve most users well, it has never gained widespread acceptance. In fact, except for IT specialists, it's never really had any traction at all. StatCounter provides statistics by country and worldwide based on usage by people whose computers visit websites. Because those statistics are limited to web users, some machines are left out. And Linux computers, which often run websites but don't visit them, aren't counted at all. Although incomplete, the numbers are generally representative of worldwide usage because StatCounter is used at more than 3 million websites, including mine. StatCounter reveals a lot of information about the general state of computing. Average size of screen, for example, or operating system, browser type, browser version, and lots more. What StatCounter tells us about Linux is that it's nowhere. Really, nowhere. Windows 8 isn't yet reflected on the chart of the top five operating systems, but Windows 7 hovers around 50%, Windows XP around 30%, and Vista, surprisingly, still at 10%. That shows that Microsoft has 90% of the market. Apple's OS X continues to hover around 10%, but Apple's iOS is slowly advancing. And all others, that would be Linux and Windows 8 and Android and everything else you can think of, those are combined to give just single-digit penetration. Combined. Linux is generally considered to command less than 1% of the market share, and in part that's because it has an unjustified reputation of being hard to use. It's different from Windows. It's different from OS X. But it's not any more difficult than either of the major operating systems. A decade ago, what I was writing about was a plan by IBM to work with Sharp to develop a handheld computer that would run Linux. At the time, Sharp already had a Linux-based palm top called the Zarus. The device hadn't caught on with consumers, and even with IBM's help, it never did. Although IBM seems no longer to be involved, Zarus devices are still available. But have you seen one in use lately? Or ever? In 2007, Sharp indicated that it planned to discontinue the line. But you can still find new units on the market five years later. You've heard me talk about Ubuntu. Launched in 2004, Ubuntu is the most used Linux desktop operating system distribution by far and it hasn't really helped with overall acceptance of Linux because Ubuntu's success appears to have been mainly at the expense of other Linux distributions. Have you considered Linux? 
Now, granted, you can't buy Microsoft Office or Adobe Creative Suite for Linux, and that is the primary reason I don't use Linux. But thousands of free open-source applications that would be suitable for many people do exist. What can you run on a Linux computer? Avast, AVG, and Bitdefender all have antivirus applications for Linux. Chrome, Firefox, and Opera all available for Linux, as are several other browsers. For email, you have a choice of Thunderbird, Evolution, and Kmail. Instant messaging? Of course. Linux has literally dozens of those, including Pigeon. And Skype, which also includes phone calls, works on Linux. Graphics and publishing mean The Gimp and Scribus, among others. I have never been able to make The Gimp my friend, but others say it's a good competition for Photoshop, which, of course, does not run on Linux. Although you won't find a Linux version of Microsoft Office, you will find LibreOffice and its predecessor, OpenOffice. You'll also find photo managers, Shotwell and FSpot, music managers such as Banshee and Rhythmbox, sound editors like Audacity, video players like VLC, Hulu, Desktop, and Blender. If you need to manage disk partitions and booting, Linux has Gparted and lots of other utilities. Burn disks with Bracero, mount ISO files with Gmount ISO, track notes with Tomboy, Zim, and others. Manage passwords with LastPass or KeePass. And you can even run some Windows applications with Wine. And the list goes on and on and on. Linux isn't necessarily better or worse than Apple's OS X. It isn't necessarily better or worse than Microsoft's Windows 7 or Windows 8, unless you're running a web server. Although Microsoft and Apple computers can both function as web servers, most web servers run Linux, and with good reason. Linux could be the right operating system for your desktop, too. But approximately 99% of the world's desktop and notebook computer users will never find out. In short circuits, a message from Switzerland. Excuse me, United States and England, but there seems to have been a bit of a data leak over here. That's not the kind of message you want to receive if you're running a spy agency, but that's exactly what Switzerland's intelligence service has reportedly been telling their U.S. and British counterparts. The theft of counter-terrorism information apparently was conducted by a senior IT technician who worked for the Swiss Intelligence Service, NDB. The technician was arrested this summer, but later released from prison while the investigation by members of Swiss Attorney General Michael Lauber's staff proceeds. The technician hasn't been identified, and apparently his plan to sell the stolen information was never realized. But they can't be sure. According to various reports, the technician was frustrated because his recommendations about security were being ignored. The amount of data involved constitutes somewhat more than a drip or a leak. It's more like a major flood, probably terabytes of data, perhaps millions of pages of classified materials apparently copied to portable hard drives and carried away in the technician's backpack. He had worked for eight years at the agency and had virtually unrestricted rights to all of the agency's internal networks. The CIA and Britain's MI6 share information with each other and with other intelligence services, such as the NDB. And it was the Swiss bank, UBS, that tipped off authorities when they noticed what they considered to be a suspicious attempt by the NDB technician to set up a secret account.
would you look at this? It's no longer a teenager. Writing in TechCrunch, John Biggs reminds us that text messages are now entering their third decade. It was December 1992 that Neil Papworth, an engineer at the SEMA Group in Newbury, Berkshire, England, sent a Merry Christmas message to a friend at Vodafone. At first, texting, also known as SMS or short message service, was a flop. So that was 20 years ago. Voda had hoped that the service would be a fun and easy way for employees to communicate with each other. That didn't really happen. In fact, not a lot happened with SMS for the better part of its first decade. During the intervening years, though, things have picked up a bit. Now the average late teens to mid-twenties send an average of 133 messages per week. The overall loads about 8 trillion messages a year. Cell phone companies charge absurdly high rates for these little messages, but that doesn't seem to reduce their popularity. And the genre launched a new way of speaking and writing. Or so we think. In fact, back in the day when United Press International was a large worldwide operation, employees who called themselves unipressers at the various bureaus around the world used the teletypes to communicate with each other. Those messages were short and every bit as cryptic as today's text. the clean room. These days, very well known, ubiquitous, you find them everywhere. Highly filtered air is pumped in, providing positive air pressure so that dust and other assorted junk won't get into the room. If you work on electronic devices, you're familiar with clean rooms, and the man who invented them is dead. The New York Times obituary for Willis Whitfield explained that stray particles just a few microns wide could comprise the integrity of a circuit board in a nuclear weapon. Unchecked bacteria could quickly infect a patient after a seemingly successful operation. Microprocessors, not yet in existence at the time, would have been destroyed by dust. After all, an average cubic foot of air contained three million microscopic particles, and even the best efforts at vacuuming and wiping down a high-tech work surface could only reduce that rate to one million. So that was the problem that Willis Whitfield addressed in 1962. He worked at Sandia Labs from 1954 through 1984, and he was the man who designed rooms in which filtered air came in at the ceiling and exited at floor level. It might not seem like a complicated concept, the New York Times article noted, but nobody had tried it before. Whitfield's design replaces the room air every six seconds. Today, clean rooms are routine but they're very important in high-tech settings and in medicine. Whitfield, who died at the age of 92, made it possible for disk drives with fragile heads flying just microns above disks, spinning at 5,400 RPM or 7,200 RPM or even 15,000 RPM. A nearly invisible speck of dust can be catastrophic in those conditions. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.